0: Carl Menninger wrote this 40 years ago. On a sunny day in September, a stern-faced, plainly-dressed man could be seen standing on a street corner in a busy Chicago loop. As pedestrians hurried by on their way to lunch or business, he would solemnly lift his right arm and, pointing to the person nearest him, recite loudly a single word, Guilty. Then without any change of expression, he would resume his still stance for a few moments before repeating the gesture. Then again, the, the raising of his arm, the pointing, the solemn pronouncing one word, guilty. The effect of this strange display on the passing strangers was extraordinary, almost eerie. They would stare at him Stop and hesitate, look away, look at each other and then him again and then then hurriedly continue on their way. One man turning to another who was my informant exclaimed, but how did he know? No doubt many others had similar thoughts. How How did he know? Guilty, everyone guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of over parking, guilty of lying, guilty of arrogance and pride toward the one God. Guilty of borrowing, not, say, embezzling? Guilty of unfaithfulness to a faithful wife? Guilty of only evil thoughts or evil plans? Guilty before whom? Is a police officer following me? Did anyone see? Will anyone notice? Does he know about me? It isn't technically illegal, is it? I can make it up, I can give it back, I apologize. I wasn't myself when I did it. No one knows about it. I'm gonna quit. I wouldn't want my children to see this. How can I ever straighten out? What can I do? Guilty. This is true of every person on planet Earth. This is true of everyone seated here this morning. Guilty. Guilty is where we would stand if it were not for Christ. Without him, we would stand Eternally condemned before a holy and righteous God. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Only through Christ can we have new life. And those who call on Christ for salvation are made new and are called to follow him. We would love Christ then more than anything else. This morning, we're gonna end our journey through the Gospel of John. This is the 47th time I've preached a message in the Gospel of John, I counted. 21 chapters long, 15,635 words the Gospel is. For me, John has to be one of the most awe-inspiring books in the New Testament. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, John has given us a, a beautiful picture of our Lord. So for me, it's bittersweet this morning. I have enjoyed studying the gospel of John. But we finish it. And one of my favorite chapters is John 21. So I'm gonna read, and I ask you to follow along, John 21, the entire chapter. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were there so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not wanna go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die. But if it was my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is a disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This morning we're going to finish the Gospel of John in chapter 21 and we're going to have two points. Simply Jesus appears and Jesus restores. And the main point that I want you to walk away with is that now that you have new life in his name, we're to love Jesus and we're to follow him. God calls all believers to be committed God followers. Not for a week, not for a month, not when things are just going well, but forever. We're to love and to follow God. This is what a Christian does. And so we're gonna dive into John's gospel. And the first point is Jesus appears. The chapter begins by John informing us that this is Jesus here appearing to them, the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. John is again writing to inform the reader of the significance of Jesus revealing himself to the people following the resurrection. There are details in this chapter that John includes so that the readers can see the veracity of this account. We're not told how many days this scene happens following the resurrection. We just are told that it happens here at the sea. And this is a familiar place for these men. Simon Peter is mentioned first in, in, in verse 2 along with seven others. And what does Peter do? In verse 3, we see he's going fishing. Peter returns to what he knows best, fishing. Um, Put yourself in his position. What would you do now? Jesus is alive. There there must have been a level of uncertainty now that he is back. What, What do we do now? It's almost like they were training for a marathon for three years and knew that something significant was coming. Then the trauma comes and they somehow make it through. But what do they do next? Well, for fishermen, he goes back to work. He goes back to fish. And I don't think this is just a recreational fishing trip. I think this is Peter and those men going back to work. And Peter was never one to to sit back and do nothing. Peter is home and he's comfortable and this is normal for him. And he's not the only one. No, the rest follow. Peter's always been a leader, a man willing to stick out his neck and take a risk. It hasn't always worked out for him. He steps up again and he's heading back to the only job that he's ever known, fishing. And they head out at night because they can avoid the heat of the day. And if any of you were outside yesterday, you know what that's like. It's hot. And at night, they might have a better catch. And if it's at night, then the fish will be fresh for the morning if they go to the market to sell them. But as we read, they don't catch anything. I'm sure this was not normal for them. But throughout the gospels, the disciples never catch any fish on their own when Jesus is around. It's only when they listen to Christ's word do they bring in such a catch that their their nets can't hold it. So in verse 4 here, he says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered, No. Jesus comes. They don't recognize him right away. And he calls out to them, hey, friends, have you caught anything to eat yet? But they haven't. The the night for them was a failure. They're they're not bad fishermen. But even though every time they're with Jesus, they're unable to catch anything. If we look in Luke 5, we read of another instance where the the men are out fishing, but they're unable to snag a single fish. And, And Peter is also at the center of this scene. Turn with me to to Luke chapter 5. I want you to see it. Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 3, though. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to to Simon, put put out in the deep and let down your nets for the catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and, and, they, and Jesus said to them, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And in both of these situations, in Luke 5 and in John 21, they're both out there in boats catching fish. And in Luke 5 and in John 21, they, they fish all night. And in both situations, they have no fish after their tries. In Luke 5, Jesus tells them to try again and directs them how to catch some fish. In the same in John 21. In both accounts, they they get so many fish that their nets can barely hold it. The same problem, the same situation, the same intervention, the same result. But a different response. In Luke 5, when Peter sees what's going on, he looks at Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What, What he's saying is, Get away from me, Jesus. You make me feel small. You make me feel weak and and vulnerable. Leave me. But that's not the same response in John 21. In John 21, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, look, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, he put on his outer garment because he was stripped for working, and he throws himself into the sea as to make his way to Jesus as quickly as possible. He's running Probably the water isn't that deep. He's trying to wade through as quickly as he, as he can. he probably looked like a crazy man. Can you imagine it throwing yourself violently off the boat into the water to get there? And what's going on? Why are the two extreme differences in reaction? It's the gospel. It's Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection life. Something happened to Peter. He wants to get closer to Jesus now. He understands the gospel. He believes now. And we need to realize this morning that if you ever come to grips with the real Jesus Christ, you're going to have an extreme reaction. You don't have a a ho hum reaction to Jesus in either situation. It's, It's not, wow, Jesus, this is great. Thanks for food. It's not a mild interest in Jesus. Well, this, this guy's interesting, fascinating. I'd like to sit down with him once in a while. No, it's an extreme reaction to Jesus. It's either negative or positive. In Luke 5, it's a negative extreme reaction. And why does he have such a negative reaction? Well, the Bible says in general that we want a God that is kind of vague. We want a a kind God, we we want a milquetoast God, not a real God. In fact, the Bible says, we want to be God. We want control, we want power. We want decision making, we want to set the direction. Let, Let me give you an example. Let's say you want to impersonate a police officer. When I was young, before I got my driver's license, I thought it would be cool at, when I got my license to, to go and purchase a Crown Victoria, you know, the, the cop car of the 90s. and go find a used one with a little light on the side. I thought that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. You know why? Because when you drive that car down, everyone slows down or moves away, you know? Just get anywhere I want. Maybe even then dress like a cop. You know, you can walk around and do pretty much anything you wanted to do. I'm a cop, I have that. Everyone's gonna respect me. You know, when I drive in the cop car, they're gonna slow down and move. When I walk in the, the cop outfit, they're gonna respect me. You can drive and do anything you want without any fear until one person sees you. Another police officer. Right? You see, if you're impersonating a police officer, you're afraid of no one except a real police officer. Because the real one, the genuine one, will unmask you. They will show you that you're a fraud. We all want to be God. We want to be our own savior. And how do we know that? Well, when we're by others that are not as good as we think, we feel somewhat superior. feel better about yourself. But when you get near to God, the real God, the God of the Bible, the holy, righteous God, you react differently. You respond differently. And you say like Peter, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And why is that? Because he makes you feel like a fraud because we are. He makes you feel small because we are. He makes you feel vile, because we are. When you get next to the real Jesus Christ, there's always an extreme reaction. And that's Luke 5. But if you come back to John 21, Peter doesn't react this way in John 21. Why? I believe he understands the gospel. He's new. His self-image has been crushed on that Friday. He doesn't trust Peter anymore. He trusts in Christ. He arises and throws himself into the seed to get to Jesus. Why? Because when you have a self-image based on the gospel, though I'm a great sinner, I am safe now in Jesus. E- even though I, I, I do screw up, I am secure in him. Because he saved me. He loves me. He died for me. And you run to Jesus, now made new. And Jesus is, is more desirable than ever before. And this is the difference between religious people and Christians. When a religious person sees that they're a failure, they tell Jesus to depart from them. You throw God away, you throw people away. You want nothing to do with them. You stop coming to church when you're disappointed in yourself. And unless you understand the gospel, you will not run to Jesus' side when you fail. And friends, you will not be right unless you give up on that former life and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, it's the resurrected Lord that causes Peter to now run to him. He he knows that he's a failure and he knows that his only hope is in Jesus. And Peter failed. He failed in a mighty way. Coming back to this this scene here, Peter throws himself in the water running towards Jesus. And as they see and recognize what Jesus is doing, they, they bring the the boat to shore with the fish. And Jesus already prepared for them, asked them to bring in some of the catch that they have made. In fact, in verse 11, we know exactly how many fish they have. John tells us 153 fish. Now there's been debate. I went through commentaries to find out if there's any discussion on this. Why 153? A lot of discussion by commentators. They, 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 they try to sort through the language. What does this mean? What is John trying to communicate? And I have the answer. Do you know what he's trying to communicate? They caught 153 fish. (laughs) There's nothing else there, folks. This is John trying to say, listen, this happened. Don't read into it. These are experienced fishermen. What do we fishermen do, right? What are two things they do? They count the fish and they say they're this big. That's what they did. They've worked in this industry for years. It was 153 fish. And in this first, John is trying yet again to give evidence that this really happened. He's including details that only he and the others there in that, in that situation would know. Jesus says, Come, bring some of these fish. And in that is a transition that John gives us, moving from the interaction now, the appearance of Jesus now to the, to the group and to Peter specifically. So Jesus appears, first point, Second point, Jesus restores. Breakfast is now being served and enjoyed together. John gives us some details in verse nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. A charcoal fire. It's a beautiful morning on the shore of Tiberias water glistening in the background sand beneath them and the smell of smoke from a charcoal fire has your memory ever been awakened by a sense of smell freshly roasted peanuts as you walk into the Mariner's ballpark to watch the Tigers lose I can't stand the smell of garlic now After that series. Or pipe tobacco. My grandpa smoked a pipe for years. so When I smell it, my mind is rushed quickly to memories of my grandfather. Or the mustiness of an old office. The smells just take us back. Our, Our minds are rushed backwards to a time that's forgotten maybe. Experience or a place, maybe it's a person, a situation that floods our memory. And charcoal fires are this way, and they have a peculiar smell to them. And when was the last time that Peter is mentioned to be by a charcoal fire? Do you remember? John 18, verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. It was Jesus' trial. It was the worst night of his life. The night of his monumental abandonment of Jesus. How could Peter not think of that night as he smells the coals burning before him? That memory, I'm sure, is just burned into his memory. It's just etched there. Who is Peter? What is Peter's story? You know, he's a man who had great starts. And really poor endings. Three years earlier in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes walking towards the boat, walking on water in the midst of a terrible storm. And Peter impulsively asks to come out and experience firsthand Jesus on the water. And his, Jesus invites him, Come. And he, as he walks out, he loses confidence in Jesus Christ. And what happens? He sinks. Great start, poor ending. Then in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks the disciples who they say the son of man is. And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then receives praise for the work of God and Peter by giving him that knowledge. And then Jesus proceeds to tell Peter and the others that the church will begin and they will have position leading. And what does Peter do? Because he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. What is Peter's response Well, now with the new keys in hand, he's going to rebuke Jesus and tells him, this is not going to happen. You cannot do this, Jesus, he says. And what does Jesus famously respond? Get behind me, Satan. Folks, any time we hinder the gospel, we are on the side of Satan. Satan. And we're not on God's side. Great start, poor ending. And in the upper room where Jesus lays out again what must happen with the betrayal of Judas and his death, Peter then asks if he can go with him. And he says then, saying emphatically, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. Even if they, the other disciples, even if they fall away, I will never do that, Jesus. As Mark's gospel says. But we know now that's not what Peter does. Great start, poor ending. He's overconfident in his own abilities. He believes in himself instead of God. And and listen, friends, this is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's being paraded around churches today. Just believe in yourself. Speak truth to yourself. Think positive thoughts about yourself. Your time is coming. It's all on you, and it's all garbage it's all nonsense. And this happens for Peter. He fails not once, not twice, but three times, and his failure is repeated, public, and explicit while standing near a charcoal fire. And now he sits with Jesus with another charcoal fire burning in the background, and breakfast is done, and the rest of the group seems to not be included in this discussion. And Jesus says to him in verse 15, Do you love me more than these? Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Ten my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to them, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Peter had failed. Peter failed that night of Jesus' trial. The most important oath, and he cannot fulfill it. And I'm sure these thoughts went through his mind. Would anyone ever trust me again? Could I ever dig myself out of this hole? Why would anyone ever listen to me again? Can I ever be a leader again? And the irony of it all is that Peter felt like he could be the best leader in the Christian church because he could perform better than anyone else and yet he performed the worst. We would never say that the gospel isn't strong enough to save Peter, but is it strong enough now to restore Peter? Peter? You know, there's no other gospel that can save or restore. There's no other religion that can wipe away the past. There's no other one that can take the worthless and, and breathe life into them so that they can serve him for his glory. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And with that, he, he puts him back into leadership because Jesus says, you're willing to repent. If you're willing to repent, you'll be more qualified than you ever were before. I can use you, Peter, not because you're a great performer, but because you're a great repenter. Amen. Because greatness comes not from man, but from God. But let's look what Jesus does here. The, the first thing Jesus does is for Peter to take responsibility. And it's painful to watch where did Peter deny Jesus? It was at a charcoal fire. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is on the beach with a charcoal fire. And how many times did he deny him? 3 times. And so Jesus asked him 3 times, "Do you love me?" And not just that, but "Do you love me more than these?" Do you love me more than feeling important amongst these men? Do you love me more than them? This is the first step in repentance. No blame shifting. You take responsibility. Jesus continues to ask, and every time he asks, Peter responds, no excuses, no complaining. Peter doesn't ask, how long is this gonna happen, Jesus? He doesn't get upset. He is grieved by his sin. And he responds every time that he does love Jesus, every time he agrees, and every time he takes responsibility. Peter has learned that he is not better but worse than other people. He has seen himself at the lowest and that there's nothing in him now to boast in. He has learned that his boasting should be in God alone. And the truth is we want our grand abilities and keen insights to make us usable to God, not our broken hearts and our crippling weaknesses. A.W. Tozer has written a number of books, but there's a statement that sticks out in reference to suffering. It's at the end of a paragraph. Let me read it for you. The flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages, saints, and martyrs. And through the grace of God, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have scars to prove that they were present when battle was joined. And Tozer continues by saying that it's necessary for God to use suffering in his holy work of preparing his saints. And he adds this, he says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I don't think this means that we are to look for experiences of suffering if we want to be used by God. And living in this broken world, few of us ever have to look for it. It finds us. It found Peter. And I'm sure he experienced suffering as a result of his denial of Jesus. And Peter needed to learn to find his righteousness in Christ alone. Self-righteous people are brutal weapons in the church. And with each question of Jesus to Peter, he's taking him lower in humility. And he goes to the sin underneath the sin. You notice that Jesus doesn't say, Peter, are you ever gonna lie again? Are you ever gonna deny me again? That's not what he does. He poses one question. It's not, do you love to pray? or do you love to serve, or do you love to give? None of these things, even though they're they're vital to the health of the church. No, he says, do you love me? He could have asked those questions. "Will, Will you ever lie to me? Will you ever disobey me again? Will you ever steal from me? But what a terrible thing that would be. Instead, he asked, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than anyone else and then jesus seems to change the direction here in verse 18 he says truly truly i say to you when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you're old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go this is a well-known proverb from the day there's there's much that happens each day, and most of it is not necessarily under control. But dressing, for most of us, we have under our control, right? In most of the Western world, you can decide what you're gonna wear today. And in Washington, you may want to choose wisely when it's gonna be 95 degrees out. You know, or you're gonna wear your skinny jeans, which I never will, and that shirt. But for Peter, no, it was a tunic and a sash. He could choose... Dark brown or light brown? So what is Jesus getting at in verse 18? If you remember on the night Jesus, of the last supper, Jesus said that he had to go away and Peter asked to go with him. Do you remember Jesus' response that I read earlier? He says, Peter, you will. You will follow after me. And so he says here, Jesus says to him, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. The Greek word is tsunumi. It means to fasten. He will have his hands stretched out because Peter will be crucified. Peter, in fact, was crucified. They will dress him. They will carry him Where he doesn't want to go. And he will die for Jesus. I believe, knowing Peter, this made him happy. It made him happy because he loved Jesus so much. That he would die for him and die in the same way. Can you imagine, though, what it would have been like for Peter knowing that at any point, any day, he might die for his faith? Can you imagine waking up every morning and thinking, today might be the day. They might come for me today. Perhaps today. Perhaps today is the day that I'll die for Jesus. Jesus. Have you ever thought that? Maybe not dying for your faith, but just dying. You know, what would this do to our lives and our ministries and the urgency of serving God if we knew it could be today? Perhaps today is your last day in service for your Lord. Will it make a difference? And the priority here isn't dying though, it's living. And it's not living for yourself, it's living for Jesus. Because Jesus continues in verse 19, he says, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. A moment by moment obedience to Jesus. A lifetime of discipleship with his Lord. This isn't a soft, squishy type of love, but a dedication to Jesus to love him and to serve him. Now remember, this passage, this section is, is Jesus restoring Peter back into ministry. Peter is a, a soon-to-be preacher, and I realize I don't have enough time to cover every nuance, the subject of ministry restoration, but I found a quote that I believe satisfies. It was from a Puritan, John Angel James, who wrote this. When a preacher of righteousness has stood in the way of sinners, he should never again open his lips in the great congregation until... His repentance is as notorious as his sin. And now Peter, with this new knowledge, is gonna begin a new life of ministry. But before that, he wants to ask Jesus a question. Skipping down to verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Peter talking about John here. And now with this prestigious honor, I believe, that Peter felt that he would die for his Lord, thinking that now he's reached the pinnacle, asks, what's going to happen to John? What's his future? What's going to transpire for John now? Is he going to die the same way? And as you read, you might want to step back. Like, seriously, take a step back because Jesus is about to cold cock Peter in his head. He's going to just unleash here. Jesus says to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, you have enough to concern yourself with yourself. You follow me. Stop worrying about others, Peter. Look at me. Follow me. Love me. Serve me. That is the call in Peter's life. That is the call in our lives. To follow him. I believe Jesus is speaking to us this morning through his word and through this situation with Peter. And I ask, are you seated here this morning in need of restoration? You're here this morning. You know that you've failed Jesus again. You know it. And you come back to him, and you promise again, and you promise again. I'll never lose my temper again with my kids. I'll never drink like that again. I'm done with pornography. I won't demean my husband anymore. I will not cheat on my taxes or on my tests at school or my spouse. I'm stopping, Jesus. I'm stopping. And then you fail again. And you repent, and you promise, and you fail again over and over. And you begin to think, how can Jesus ever take me serious again? How can he ever use me? Do you ever feel this way, friends? Your failure to Jesus is not beyond his restoring grace. I'm going to encourage you this week to spend some time reading Psalm 51. To to read it to meditate on it, to read it again. God is gracious to forgive us of our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But we bring those to him and we repent, we turn away. And we trust in him and his power, his sustaining power to not only forgive us, but to strengthen us to serve him. His restoring grace will not run out. And we have a powerful real life person here in front of us an erratic, volatile, people pleasing, overinflated, prideful, overdramatic, importance pursuing Peter. This is the same Peter who, in the, in the book of Acts, will stand before a large crowd and preach, and over 3,000 souls are redeemed. It's the same Peter. And God delights to restore and use his children. So it comes down to two questions. Do you love Jesus? Will you obey Jesus? Will you follow him? Do you love Jesus? Have you thought about that this week? Do I love him? Do I have that same reaction as Peter does in John 21? To spend time with my Lord. And then when you do, when you're in... His word will you follow, will you obey? Do you trust in the power of God to do that? If you're a Christian here this morning, then he is your Lord. And the right response to his lordship is obedience. You follow Christ, you follow what his word says. We have too many toast Christians running around and the concern shouldn't be that we would burn out in our service to God. It's that we would fizzle out in our love for our God. They would black out because we forget him. Do you love him? Jesus says to us, follow me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and rebukes us and brings conviction to us that your word is eternal and that we can trust it. God, I pray that as a a church family here that we would be so saturated in your word and they would look to obey your word, not on our power, but in yours, that we would trust in you. God, help us not to think that we can just do it all on our own and fall in the same trap as Peter, but help us to remember the gospel, remember that you saved us, that you redeemed us, that you bought us back, and that you own us, and that you'll give us the strength. Help us to lean and trust in you. And help us to be faithful stewards of this gospel as we leave this place today, God. Help us to be preachers of your word. Help us to live out your word. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.